Amen. Uh, Let's turn now in our Bibles, loved ones, to the scripture passage we will read together this morning from Isaiah chapter 35. Much of the language of that psalm that we just sang is found here in this passage of the wilderness being turned into this lush garden place for us. And we'll get into what that means as we study this passage together. But first, let us hear God's word from Isaiah chapter 35. We'll read the entire chapter here. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. Well, we didn't read the chapter that just came before this, chapter 34, but there Isaiah describes for us and declares God's coming judgment upon all the nations of earth. And so the warning has already rung out by the time that we reach here, Isaiah 35. There is a day only known to God himself when the Lord shall return to judge the living and the dead. And he will on that day turn every human society into a wasteland, a wilderness of chaos, disorder, and emptiness. Why? Why would God do that, come in such judgment? Well, it's because of the evil that exists in this world, the injustice, the disgrace. The Lord cannot simply sweep up evil under the rug and not deal with it. To remain just, God must uncover all that is evil. He must sweep it up and then destroy it, deal with it justly. And so he shall come to judge the living and the dead. But that leaves us with a question. That pronouncement of judgment leaves God's people asking here at the beginning of Isaiah 35. The implicit question behind this is, what about us? Lord, 
Will you destroy your good creation and your chosen people along with the nations? In other words, Lord, will you throw out your baby along with the bathwater? Maybe you feel and think the same way this morning. When you look out at the evil in the world, the chaos, the disorder that exists, the abuse of power, the vanity of materialism, the covert racism that still exists in the world, the arrogant nationalism, the indifference towards ecology, the dishonor that exists amongst the youth, the rampant sexual immorality, and much, much more. Maybe when you see all of that and that evil, you think, will there be justice in the end? Will God ever come and set things right? And who will be left standing when all things are made new? Now, it's a question like that that Abraham back in Genesis 18 had when God declared to him that he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness. And after he declared that, we read in Genesis 18 that Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will, we, will they perish as well? And that's the question that's behind this text. The people in Isaiah's day were thinking, Lord, when you come to judge the nations and turn the earth into a wasteland, will you sweep us away as well? Is that how this is going to end? What about us? What about your good creation? What about your promises, O Lord? And that's what this passage is all about. For God's people who feel weak, who feel afraid and anxious and trapped in a bad place, That is for us. This passage is for us, beloved. If that is you, he is telling you this morning, behold your God. He will come and he will save you. We are to fix our eyes on God himself and his promises to redeem us and to renew all things. And that's what we find in this chapter, God's glorious plan for all those who walk in the way of his salvation. God's plan from the very beginning was to ransom a people for himself, a ransom, ransom a people for joy. Joy that is full, bright, majestic, and everlasting in gladness that will be enjoyed with all of his creation renewed in the splendor of God's own glory. And to see that full joy that we find here in this text, we'll consider three things. First of all, the place of hope. And then secondly, the people of hope. And thirdly, the pilgrimage of hope. First of all, the place of hope. So to encourage God's people, Isaiah, he is painting here for us a beautiful picture of God's creation restored and renewed. His judgment against the nations will not obliterate this place that we currently call earth, our home, but rather he will purify it and he will perfect it. The earth. And we find that in verses 1 to 2, where he says, There, look at the text again with me. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And the crocus is a strange word to us, but it's a flower known to the Israelites, a flower much like the lily. And so this is a picture of a dry and barren desert suddenly blossoming and flourishing with life. If you jump down a little bit ahead to verses 6 to 7, he continues the description of this place, describing waters breaking forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, burning sands. You can think of the Sahara Desert turning into pools, and thirsty ground springing up with water. 
If you remember the original Lion King movie, there's a picture of this sort of at the end. After Simba defeats Scar, then the rain comes. And then this quick transition occurs right before our eyes with the simple image of the dark desert quickly transitioning over into this green garden. That's sort of what Isaiah is describing here, but obviously far more glorious in nature. He is saying that this natural world that has been deserted into sin shall become a garden cultivated in beauty again. Isaiah is showing us here what we might describe as the Garden of Eden 2.0. All of creation made new and improved. This is big news. It's not necessarily new news because it's here in Scripture and it's old for us, right? This is old record of what God has declared and promised long ago. But it is big news in the sense that most people don't realize that this is what our Christian hope entails. That we believe that our final destination is this very world, renewed and recaptured by the glory of God. And so, yes, there is a final judgment coming that will be a devastating fire, but that fire will be a purifying fire, a fire that removes the impurities and refines that which is inherently good. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that God's creation was and still is very good. That's what he declared in the beginning. If you remember those early chapters in Genesis, After God creates his physical and natural world and all of its beauty, God delights over it. And in Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. And yet, we know that the crimes of humanity that arise from the very evil that dwells within all of us has corrupted or contaminated God's good creation. And so we believe that mankind's first sin caused the whole creation to fall under a curse of futility and frustration. The natural world is cursed on behalf of humanity's greed and covetousness. The earth groans and suffers beneath the selfish feet of humans. I'm not making this up. This language directly comes from the Bible itself, in particular the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. We read this. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so, when was the creation subjected to this futility that Paul is talking about? Well, we can look back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And there in Genesis 3, verse 17 to 18, God says this to Adam, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so we find biblically that the earth is cursed and groaning because of mankind's sin. 
But Paul says that this curse upon the natural world was not without hope. God cursed the earth in the hope, he says, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so this means that back in the Garden of Eden, when God cursed the earth because of man's sin, God already knew and had the plan that that curse would come to an end. He had a plan to set this natural world free from its corruption, a plan to see it flourish and blossom again. And notice what Paul says, the whole creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, the hope of the place that we're describing here, this Eden 2.0, is bound up with the hope of the people of God. And that's what Paul says a bit earlier in verse 19 of that chapter. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing. You see, the creation doesn't want to be set free to be uninhabited. No, the whole purpose of a beautiful place, you can think of your own home, why do we make a beautiful home in a place? It's so that a people can come and dwell there in that place. The whole purpose of a beautiful place is to host a beautiful people. And that's what we see in Isaiah 35 also. If you look back at the original, or at the uh, first verse there in chapter 35, the original Hebrew should read this way in English, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad over or of them. That's how the old original King James Version has it. And what Isaiah is describing here is personifying the creation as having joy and gladness, but not alone. It's not as if the creation is just rejoicing on its own, but rather the creation's joy is for or over God's people. The joy of the new creation as a place is bound up with the people who will come in and enter it to enjoy it forever with God. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. The place will be bursting with joy as a gift from God. Isaiah says the glory shall be given to it. Glory, he describes, like the fertile cedars of Lebanon. Glory, like the majestic cultivation that existed on Mount Carmel. Glory, like the beautiful valley of Sharon. God's new creation that will rise after this final judgment will be a glorious, beautiful place, a glory that no eye has seen nor ear has heard. But notice at the end of verse 2, the end of verse 2, God's people that enter that place, what will they be preoccupied with? They will not be preoccupied with the glory of the place itself, but rather with the glory of the Lord himself the very majesty of God. Remember, we're not to stop at the beauty and majesty of the created world, but rather see through it the glory of its creator. And we can think by way of example how at night the moon shines, reflecting the, the beauty of the sun. It is reflecting the glory of the sun, so to speak. And so too, all of creation shines beautifully, but it is but a reflection of of the glory of God. How much more glorious then is the Creator than, or more than His creation? And so we've seen God's place of hope that He has reserved for us. Now we'll see God's people of hope. 
We find a description of them in verses 5 to 6. God's people will pass through this final judgment that Isaiah described in chapter 34, and they will come out on the other side restored to health and renewed with joy inexpressible. We're given a picture of those who are broken, and now they're mended. Those who are wounded, and now they're healed. And look at this. They're not just walking and talking again. No, more than that. They're leaping. They're singing with joy. God's people will be new and improved. In his commentary on this passage, Alec Moiter says, Here is the Old Testament background to the New Testament doctrine of the redemption of our bodies. And the different body parts that Isaiah mentions and describes here, the different faculties, is describing the totality of this restoration and renewal. And again, if we look back and compare this to the New Testament, what Paul says in Romans 8, we find that the Apostle Paul also speaks in that same passage about the redemption of our bodies. He says this in verse 23, And not only, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit of God, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're hoping for. Now what is Isaiah talking about? What is Paul talking about? They're talking about the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. We believe that when our Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he will renew the earth and raise up our bodies, some to eternal life and others to eternal destruction. And so we believe that there will be an Eden 2.0 that will be inhabited by a humanity 2.0, renewed, remade in Christ. And again, most people, they don't know this. They don't know that the Christian hope is not just a, a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope. They, they don't know that our hope is not for this immaterial existence in the sky with just our souls, but rather our hope is for the redemption of our bodies in a renewed creation. That is what the whole testimony of God's Word is speaking about for us. It's not just the salvation of our souls, but the salvation of our bodies, lifted up and renewed by the glory of God. But that leaves us with our last question. How do we get there? What is the way? So we've seen the place of hope, the people of hope, and now, lastly, the pilgrimage of hope. And look at verse 8 with me. Isaiah says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And so, friends, here we find that there is only one way to get to that place and to be that people. It is the way of holiness that Isaiah describes here. And he says, no unclean person shall pass over into the new creation. Now, with that said, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know the way. Show me the way. Well, remember on the night before Jesus was crucified, Thomas, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responded to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is the way. 
if you entrust yourself to Jesus, body and soul, then he will take you to the Father. He will take you to that place. He will make you into his people. Jesus is the only way into the new creation that Isaiah is talking about. He is the only way to the redemption of our bodies. And why? Why is that? Because Jesus is God himself who came in human history to save us. He came to redeem us from that curse of sin and death and to set creation free from its bondage to corruption. God himself came in our human nature to break the curse by dying under the curse for us on the cross. He willingly was accursed for us in order to bless us with salvation. All of that evil that exists contaminating the world was swept up and dumped on Jesus on the cross. Your own evil, your sins, and he took it all, all of the punishment in your place for you if you believe in him. And Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. That means that he gave his life in exchange for ours. Jesus ransomed us for joy at the cost of his own sorrow and anguish, his agony on the cross. But he endured all of that. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of seeing us redeemed and restored to the glory of God. And so, Christians, behold your God, who has already come to save you. And if you believe in him, you are redeemed already in him. You belong to him. He bought you with his precious blood. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Walk in faith in him, and you will arrive at the end of your pilgrimage. Look at what Isaiah says in the passage again. He says that even if you are a fool, that is a stumbling simpleton who is stumbling to the left and to the right. In your, as long as you are in the way, even if you are a simpleton, as long as you are in the way, you will not go astray, is what Isaiah says. As long as you are in Jesus, nothing can take you out of Jesus. So stay in him, abide in him. So pilgrims on the way, take heart. You shall arrive at last as surely as our risen Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, so surely will his ransomed people rise and return to glory with him. Now look at the final verses. This is how the story ends. The very end of the, the story of all stories is described here in the final verses where he says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And I want to read for you this description from author Dane Ortland as he describes this glorious finale for us. He says this, Here's what God is saying to us through this text. If you are in Christ, one day you will find yourself on earth minus sin and disease and hospitals and medicine and alarm clocks and apologies and tears and resentment and dashed hopes relational friction and unexplainable sadness and shame and boredom and mustered-up happiness. All that gone. And you'll find yourself in a transformed but fully physical body, unable to sin, at rest 
feeling better physically than you ever could, even in your earthly prime, enjoying this earth as it was meant to be enjoyed, the food, the flowers, the mountains, the sunsets, the friendships, the uproarious laughter, the games, the songs, the smells, the basketball, the fishing, the knitting, the running, the learning, the conversations, and shot through everything and over everything and giving meaning to everything, the everlasting joy in God that you were created for. What a beautiful description of the glory that is reserved for us, that Christ has obtained for us through his life, death, resurrection from the dead, and he is coming back. And in light of that glorious hope that is before us in Christ, let's listen again to those words of encouragement at the heart of this passage, which say, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. Jesus will come and save you. Loved ones, have hope in him. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this bright and glorious hope that is set before us, the renewal of all things and the redemption of our bodies through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we hope. In him, we hope. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have confidence that we too shall arrive at last, even if we are at times fools. As long as we stay in Jesus, nothing can take us out of him. And so, Lord, keep us firm in our faith in Jesus. Strengthen our hearts. Strengthen our knees that we might stand with faith in him till the end. Lord, we ask and pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.